Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. My name is Jack Rico, and he's Mike Sargent. And he is brown, and I am black. And this is the Brown and Black Podcast, a show about seeing race in media and entertainment through a brown and black lens. Mike Sargent, we're in the middle of summer, man. I, I'm, I'm shocked that it's summer. I thought it was part of spring. I, I don't even know the seasons anymore. July 4th is this week. I don't feel like celebrating America because I think America is ugly. I think America is everything that no one wants to be a part of in today's world. I think America in many ways has always been ugly. It's just that America is very good at putting on a mask. America is very good at projecting an image of itself, even to itself, forget the world. So I think that part of what has happened here, ironically, as we're all wearing masks, the mask has been lifted. Right. So let's talk about the news. A lot of stuff has been going on and two key stories have really stood out this week. The first one is about Netflix and it has to do with um, Black Banks. And the second one is about Hamilton that comes out on Disney Plus uh, this week. Can you uh, start it off with the Netflix story? Because I found that to be very interesting and it leads me to a bigger topic on reparations that I ultimately want to talk about. All right, well, the headline for the New York Times was that Netflix moves $100 million in deposits to bolster black banks. Now, what does that really mean? And why would Netflix be putting their money into banks? Yeah, Netflix. It was weird when I saw the article. I said, Netflix? You're a streaming cable content creator. Like, what's this, what's this whole thing with banks? First of all, we all know the, the way to achieve security in America is is through wealth. That's that's the only way to do it. Correct. And we also know that blacks historically have been cut off from that wealth in every single way you could think about. You know, you say, why Netflix? You know, there, there are polls, what they call the Horowitz Research Survey. 40% of African-American viewers subscribe to Netflix. That's, that's a huge amount of, of African-American viewers. That means we're, we're watching Netflix because we see ourselves. We're watching Netflix because we're seeing more diversity than we ever saw on network TV. And network TVs had plenty of time. So has mm-hmm. HBO. So has all these other giants of media. So to me, Netflix owes a lot of their success to their diversity and to an audience of color. So it makes sense for them to want to give back because that's how it should be. The person who came up with this concept for Netflix 
was a guy who was in charge of diversity hiring. Okay. Aaron Mitchell. Aaron Mitchell. And Aaron Mitchell was not like a financial guy, but he had read a book, The Color of Money, Black Banks and Racial Wealth Gap by... Masra Bardaran. Masra Bardaran. And here's the thing that's key about that for me. He's a person of color and he was in the room. And he's not only a person of color, but he's someone who's knowledgeable. He had read this book. He had educated himself. And that's really what I think Netflix making this move, they couldn't make a move that's this smart if they had not educated themselves, if there was not a person of color in the room, if there was not an acknowledgement of not only our power, but, uh, you know, financially and economically our power, but our significance. This whole story on Netflix is really about capitalism. For example, Netflix, uh, from what I understand uh, by that article, um, they have more than five billion dollars in cash and what they were going to do with it is they were going to take about 35 million instead of a bank in Barbados they were going to shift that over to the 20 African-American banks that we have in this country right now that after the recession it went from 50 down to 20 and they're barely hanging on so this guy Aaron Mitchell was in the room and said listen I just read this book why don't we go around that and these people were like you know what that's a great idea why don't so they were thinking about it before before George George Floyd. Floyd. Right. Like you said, if it wasn't for a black man being in the room, where the room where it happens, if he wasn't in the room where it happens, Netflix would not be given this cash. So how key is it for that to happen? And how key is it that Netflix is starting to put money and hopefully every other major streaming giant will start putting money in black banks that way you can start closing in on the racial wealth gap. A friend of mine, and I have to give him credit, named Mick Noya, said something that I think is very key here to everything that's happening to Netflix, wanting to address it to, let's just say, white people in general. He said that white people have discovered racism in this country like they discover a new show on Netflix. And, and, <laughs> and, and what's great about that is, it, Incredible. is it, it's true because... There was a poll I was reading that said, uh, a Monmouth poll that that said 76% of Americans and 71% of white Americans believe that racial and ethnic discrimination is a big problem in the United States. But a few years ago, little more than half of white Americans believe that. Now, they were so shocked, they thought there was something wrong with the poll. But the point being that it's changed. The awareness is making people realize and making people do things, maybe people consider things that should have been done decades ago, but still haven't. I think the big key point here about Netflix putting money in black banks really goes back to the point of reparations. And this is something that's starting to pick up a lot of steam. The New York Times did a huge uh, essay on it with Nicole Hannah-Jones, who was the creator of the 69 Project at the New York Times. And she wrote this essay um, where... Essentially, she was saying, look at that. Look at everything that has happened. Look at the amount of inequality. It is time that we ask for reparations. Now, Marianne Williamson, who was a former presidential candidate for the Democratic Party, mm-hmm. she talked about reparations as well. And it was like the first time that I, ha- I had really heard. And, and look, Mike, I'm not going to fault every American who doesn't know about racism to the fact that they're ignorant. Yes, they're ignorant, but not necessarily by choice. A lot of us, and especially them, never had chapters in their history books that talked about it. They don't want to know about it. Marianne Williamson talked about two to $500 billion 
which should be more like $3 trillion, but that's politically unfeasible. So two to $500 billion is at least good enough to help institute a new economic and educational renewal for African Americans in this country. The only way reparations could ever even feasibly, which again is what we talked about last week, which is like one of the background elements of the Watchmen. The only way it could really happen though is for there to be accountability. And what you just said, you know, what prevents accountability is A, knowledge, you know, it's not taught in schools. And then B, what you've also, and we've talked about here on the show is we're all pretty distracted. We live in a culture where there are more distractions than ever before. And just in case you had a few minutes of time where you weren't being distracted, uh, we might even try and come up with channels like QB to, to fill that for you. All those distractions mean that you, you live in your bubble. You live in your bubble, even if you're you're in a what you consider to be a woke bubble, you're still in your bubble. You're still your life is and everything that happens is based on what you're seeing day to day. And if you're going to work and then coming home and dealing with friends and family you already have and watching the shows you already watch and doing the things and getting on social media, it's like, okay, your life is filled. No, yeah, and you live in a bubble. You live in a bubble. And like you said, sports comes, okay, there we go. They spend uh, more time with sports and then a movie and this and a TV series and a binge. And so we can swipe by reality just like you do on a dating app. And like, ah, uh, no, I don't want to look at that. He's, he's, he's ugly, so I'm not going to choose him. So we're going to get into reparations uh, in the next couple of weeks and kind of do a deep dive on how feasible is it for reparations to actually happen in the Joe Biden administration? How feasible is it for it to happen in the next 10 years by 2030? Do Afro-Latinos fit in reparations? Uh, even though they're half Latino, half black, but regardless, they're black, born in America. Yeah, but they get half um, the money. They get half the money. <laughs> uh, so we'll talk about that later on our show in the next couple of weeks. And the other story I want to talk about is Hamilton, the movie, quote unquote, the movie. This is a movie that came out on Disney Plus. It was supposed to come out in movie theaters, but because of COVID, it didn't happen. And now the most obvious platform for Disney is to put it on Disney Plus. And I had a chance to watch it again, and it was interesting watching. I had been there on, I believe it was like the second or third week that Hamilton opened on Broadway at the Richard Rogers Theater. I was sitting second row with my wife. It was a big event. But I'm going to lie to you if I didn't tell you that I, uh, that I remember every single line of that show. I don't remember much. It was such a blur. The, the, the It was a phenomenon. I think people need to understand. It was a phenomenon. I had not seen a phenomenon or been a part of a phenomenon like that in years. I think the New Yorker, the most one of the most respected magazines in the world, had an eight-page essay on Lynn and the show. It was incredible. And Everybody was there. Katie Couric, Meryl Streep, uh, executives of media business, politicians. It was incredible to be there. And so I loved it, but I also felt like there was a certain surreal factor of everything that it didn't allow me to retain it. Now I'm watching it in a different, from a different visual approach. There's cameras on the stage. They're closing in on close-ups. Uh, we're capturing the drama of the actors a lot better. Um, we can rewind and catch verses that we didn't catch before. But here's the biggest thing, Mike. Watching Hamilton from a new racial lens at post-George Floyd really made me think differently about this, about Hamilton. 
And it was the fact that if we're going to go ahead and accuse now in history, right, hindsight, that George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and most of the founding fathers were all slave owners, then Alexander Hamilton himself has to also be accountable for that part of history, which was never, ever mentioned in the show, in the musical. Why? And so recently, um, I got an email, like maybe 20 minutes before we began our, our podcast, about a new campaign called Abajo Hamilton. Abajo means to go down. Abajo Hamilton is composed of New Yorkers that are Latinx, uh, Afro-Latinos, and Blacks some scholars, uh, some people in the media business that are getting together to tell Disney to cancel Hamilton, to remove it from the streaming services and to never allow that movie to come out. And a lot of it's saying is because there's a blood legacy with Alexander Hamilton. Now, why hasn't it been mentioned um, more prolifically? There, there's a woman, her name is Annette Gordon-Reed. Uh, she's from Harvard. And here's what she said about Hamilton. Audience and critics love it, but historians don't. Artists have the right to create, but historians have the right to critique. If audience and critics love it, then that means that you can't mess with Hamilton. Because if you do, the derision will come on extremely heavy. This show means way too much to too many people. It makes too much money. It's part of an iconic cultural institution now, that show. And to speak bad of it, means that you're going to go, much like Armand White, the black film critic, you're going to be put on someone's shit list for the rest of your life. So it's it's incredible that people are now taking the time out to question Alexander Hamilton and his celebrity and how they're changing the narrative to make him some sort of hero, even though he was part of buying and selling slaves for his in-laws. I have always been in the minority about Hamilton. Did you see it? Of course. I saw it maybe a month or so after they filmed this. I saw it with the original cast. I saw it be- before, as it was just beginning to build as a phenomena. That's when I saw it. It was still, again, they had, they shot this, The what we saw was shot, I believe, in July or June. I saw it at the beginning of August. While I enjoyed it, and I thought it was enormously creative. But what was it a really a celebration of? Uh, was it really a celebration of black and Latino culture? Or was it a celebration of, of America through the lens of, of black and Latino music uh, uh, and giving all this stuff a sort of what would have been a dry history lesson, making right. it more contemporary. I don't think anybody came away from Hamilton feeling they learned that much about history. I think they came away from Hamilton being very amused and entertained at how it's authentically American. And I think that that's the appeal, that you blend it together, like it or hate it, it's definitely could only have sprung from people living in America. You know, I just reheard the soundtrack again. It's It's excellent. Uh, which brings me to the point of oppression of brown and black music in America. I'd like to ask you something. Yeah, we'll see, you know, all right. Um, it, it occurred to me, having watched MTV over the last few months, um, that it's, it, it's, got, it's a solid enterprise with, and it's got a lot going for it. I'm just floored by the fact that there's so, many, so few black artists featured on it. Why is that? I think that we're trying to move in that direction. We want to play artists that seem to be doing music that fits into what we want to play for MTV. There's the, the company is thinking in terms of 
narrow casting. That's evident. Um, it's evident in the fact that the only few black artists that one does see are on about 2.30 in the morning or, on, or to around 6. Very few are featured predominant, no. predominantly during the day. No, that, uh, that's a... I'll say that over the last couple of weeks, these things have been changing, but it, it's, no, uh, it's a I, slow process. I know, it's, it's funny, I think people have different perceptions. When you wind up watching, let's say you watch an hour or two or even three a day, people somehow come away with different ideas about what we are doing. We don't have any kind of day parting for anything, mm. let alone a black artist day parted out of what, what would be, quote, prime time. Mm. We don't have that. Because one sees a lot on the... On the there's a, one black station on uh, television that I keep picking up. I'm not sure which station it's on. But there's a, there seem to be a lot of black artists making very good videos that I'm surprised aren't used on MTV. Well, of course, also we have to try and do what we think not only New York and Los Angeles will appreciate, but also uh, Poughkeepsie or Midwest, pick some town in the Midwest that will be scared to death by Prince, which we're playing, or a string of other black faces That's and black music. That's very interesting. Isn't that interesting? You know, we have, to, uh, we have to play the music that we think an entire country is going to like, and certainly we're a rock and roll station now. The question would be asked, well, should, uh, since we're in New York, should PLJ play, uh, you know, uh, the Isley Brothers? Well, you and I might say, yeah, because we have grown up in an era when the Isley Brothers mean something to me, and so do the Spinners, even way after the Isley Brothers. But what does it mean to a 17-year-old? Well, if you talk on the phones to these guys like I did when I was in radio, it's Well, scary. I'll tell you what it means. I'll tell you what maybe the Isley Brothers or Marvin Gaye means to a black 17-year-old. Ah. And surely he's part of America as well, No question, it? no question. And that's why you're seeing those things. Do you not find that it's a frightening predicament to be in? Yeah, but less so here than in radio. And is it not, well, no, don't say, well, it's not me, it's them. Is it, no, is well, it, not, is it not possible that it's, it's, it should be a conviction of the station and of other radio stations, mm. to be fair? It, it, is, it does seem to be um, uh, rampant through American media. Um, is it, it, should it not be a challenge to try and make the media far more integrated in, those, in music, happening. especially of anything in musical terms? Mm -hmm. Absolutely, I think it's happening because white music and white musicians are now starting to play more than ever, what, uh, more than they have lately, let's say, in the last 10 years, yeah. what, what black artists have been into. Mm -hmm. And now, hopefully, the lines are going to start to blur. And when we play a band like ABC, yeah. well, there's, there's white and black kids who are enjoying it. And all of a sudden, well, it's, it's a little bit easier for a white kid to understand it. The fact is, quite frankly, I could even point you towards a letter in the new issue of The Record, yeah. that magazine, The Record, responding to an article by Dave Marsh that this, this kid just ranted about what he didn't want to see on MTV. Well, that's and his problem. In no uncertain terms. Well, what I'm saying, though, is that there's, as you say, there's certainly a, a lot of black kids and white kids who may want to see black music. Mm. There's a ton of them who are, it's not like it was in 67 where you say, yeah, I'm, I'm not into that, you know, but you are, you have, now it's, you're into that, I don't like you. And that's scary, and we, can, we can't just turn around and go, well, look, this is the right way. We can only teach, I think, a little bit at a time. Interesting. Okay, thank you very much. Does that make sense? Valid point?
I understand your point of view. Okay. <laughs> okay. What's so powerful about David Bowie saying that, and, and you really need to look at the visual, and we're going to put it up on our social media so you can look at it, is how he watches this guy from MTV squirm at the concept of, so you're just catering to the racism and not looking to make any change. You're just catering to what's there. And it made me think of what you're saying here about that pushback. But we have this perception. They can't afford to. It's, 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 well, we have to play to our audience. I mean, this is our audience. Like, why should we change? If it isn't broken, why do we fix it? The question is, how do we get the industry to see that it's broken? You had sent me this David Bowie MTV interview back from 1983 that he had done it with VJ Mark Goodman. Interesting. I think this was like the scenes that were cut before the interview actually began. Yes. And I think the cameraman was rolling and caught that and never deleted it. What I saw there was two interesting things. We saw two white men. One was all for black music and defending. Challenging. 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 Challenging the status quo that this guy was like, well, yeah, but we can't have a day devoted to rap or black music. What would I mean, white people think about these What would black white videos? people think with all these black faces? And by the way, that's the same thing that happens in radio. You know, recently Rolling Stone magazine came up with an article about racism in the radio business and it talked about how I think it was Sirius XM, iHeartRadio and uh, one other major radio network named all the black people that had died in the last like year or so and just did a stream of those names, just announcing them. And, you know, it was it, it was very powerful. Problem is nothing else changed after that. And they were saying that. A lot of people were complaining from classic rock genres that didn't want to hear this. And they asked programmers what the big challenge was. We make money off of white music. If at any point we alter that, we're altering our business model. We're shooting ourselves in the foot and most likely our business will fold because of it. So the question is, is it worth having businesses in the music industry that continue to oppress Brown and black music. I think that's a great question. I, I think coming back to what we were talking about before with Broadway, if this has been working, what incentive do we have to change it? What what need do we have to show black music videos when we should show plenty of white music videos? Why should we give our business to black businesses when we can do it with white businesses like we've been doing? Why should we change when things have been, as far as we're concerned, this is the privilege part, when, as far as we're concerned, things are fine. You know, as far as I'm concerned, America's great. I mean, you look at New Kids on the Block. They were the biggest phenomenon boy band in the 80s, and they are probably the first white boy band that reached those levels. I mean, a true boy band, not including, you know, the Beatles. That, that to me, was more of a band than it was a boy band. New Kids on the Block were essentially run by black leaders, by black executives, uh, from at Columbia Records. Who were flipping the script at that point. Who were flipping the script to try and gain yep, a yep, business advantage. Yep, yep. New Edition, which was the band that had Bobby Brown, et cetera, yep. et cetera, and all the other members, they were a big hit in yep. the black community. Yep. Yet they were promoted to white audiences and white girls, and they never hit the way New Kids on the Block hit. Of course. And, and you could tell it was because one was black, and their projection into the future was halted because of their skin color. 
Yet they were playing the same R&B pop music that New Kids on the Block were based on. Dude, the fact that Vanilla Ice even had a career says everything. Says everything. I just feel like when you look at the award system, you know, just recently the Grammys fired their female like CEO executive. The Grammys have been accused in the past of not awarding black music uh, the big awards of the night. They've been accused of sexual assault, sexism. I mean, the, the, the moment that Kanye West went to defend, you know, Beyonce with Taylor Swift, who everybody thought that Beyonce should have won that year. Taylor win, Taylor Swift won it. Kanye defends it despacito when it came out with its one billion views on YouTube that MTV didn't have the gall to, 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 to mention it in their top winners of the night. Fuck. We have to bring Chuck in. I don't know why you're talking about this shit. Without Chuck here, we need Chuck. Come on. Let's right, go get we need him. Chuck. Nothing I will say is going to be as informed. Chuck Creekmer, you are the founder of allhiphop.com. You're someone who's been in the business for more than a minute. You've watched it grow. You've watched things change. You've helped launch the careers of a number of people. You've given TED Talks on on all aspects of, of music and especially black music. One of the topics we've been talking about here is how the black and especially black and brown music has been co-opted by the industry, how lots of money is being made, but we don't get the same level of accolades. We don't get the same level of awards. I think that the first question, Chuck, is where is our, our music industry today when it comes to race? Have we made any progress? Is it as worse as, as, as it's ever been? Uh, Yeah, it's as worse as it's ever been. I don't think there's any <laughs> wow. real uptick. There's no difference. Just look at hip-hop, for example. Hip-hop is such a new phenomenon. I mean, it's over 40 years old. But if you look at the business side of things, how it's been co-opted and really overtaken by folks that are not of the culture, much less black or brown. It's really just symbolic of the entire music game. So, um, and it's 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 interesting because even more so now than say the '90s, we don't even really have moguls anymore. So, it, you know, back mm. in the day, you would have a, a Dr. Dre. Well, yeah, Dr. Dre, Puffy, even a Suge Knight. You know, Russell Simmons. Andre Harrell, I mean, the, it's a pretty solid list, I would say solid. And, and even beyond that, if you look at the parent companies such as Interscope or Columbia, you know, so even those moguls were made from a space of privilege and access even then. So it's a little different, but you don't see that now. Those moguls don't exist. So in other words, you're saying that in, in many ways it actually is worse. We have less control of the money than we did before. We have less control of the money. And we have less control of the culture. How is that possible, Chuck? How is that possible at 100 years of black musicians putting out some of the greatest music that today we hear? Country music is black. Son Cubano from Cuba is black. Latin music is black. So when you look at all this together, how is it possible that we are essentially starting from scratch? It's all racism. I mean, it sounds so simple and it sounds perhaps from someone who is not in the know or someone who 
comes from a an extreme place of privilege, it may sound like an excuse, but it really is. So if you just look at a basic rapper, you know, in his teens or whatever, or her teens coming out right now from an impoverished space, what kind of music are they going to create in order to change that situation? Because let's be clear, most people are not going to be in the NBA. I think a lot of people realize that. And then there's hip hop. So they're going to make music that is probably anti-black or certainly not revolution based, like, say, a public enemy or a KRS-One, because what happens is somewhere along the line, there's a white guy is like, hey, I'm not putting money behind this. I'm not putting folks that speak troop to power on in my company they're not gonna empower that type of an artist so they might not even empower someone that just speaks what you would call truth they really only promote those artists that really speak to women in the most negative ways they use the n-word i mean just like as if it's breathing they um really are really just a cancer to black culture in a lot of ways now i'm not really opposed to any particular type of hip-hop music but what i do believe in firmly is balance and being fair so if you're going to have someone like that then you need to balance that with someone that does speak positively or like a heavy d or a tribe called quest or someone that's not extreme like say you know ice cube or the ghetto boys or someone like that so i have two questions for you chuck number one is what are your thoughts on reggaeton and the second one is if latino artists and black artists are the ones that are making the money for white executives. What can we do to reclaim our power? Since they're making money off of our sweat and toil, every concert, every promo, everything that goes along with bringing in and generating that revenue, how do we then take control of that and create our own record labels I think you have to come from a place of power, a source of power and understanding that we are the creators of culture. You know, we are the creators of every, almost at least every form of art, every form of music. We're the trailblazers of culture. That's a strength position. Unfortunately, money makes you feel like you're not in a strength position. And so therefore, most people cower to money. From my position as an owner in all hip-hop, I have been checked periodly, not in a bad way, but in a good way, to understand that I do come from a strength position, even if I don't have as much money as other companies. And you kind of understand that a little bit better when you force yourself to stand on that square, so to speak. So as far as the artists and those that kind of curate the culture, you have to be willing to sacrifice and you have to be willing to build. And you have to understand that this is a long, long, long race. And it's really a journey. It really has no end. You have to understand that a lot of this may not be seen with your own eyes and that there are future generations that may benefit even more so than you do in the future. And that's really tough. You know, that's really tough when you have a kid that has to go to college and that's your son or daughter, or you have bills to pay or whatever you call it. And there are no easy answers, but I think at the end of the day, we're in a space now where you can be smarter. I think you're able to create systems and use technology to level the playing field. And I think that you can also market and collectively gather your community to create the wealth that you need to be powerful. But you have to be willing to sort of be strong, brave, 
courageous, daring, and faithful that you can do it. And it can, it is being done, and it can be done, but you, you have to start there. And your thoughts on reggaeton? Um, my thoughts on reggaeton, I, I love reggaeton. I, I'm not 100% tuned in because from my vantage point, it kind of came, it, it like it like came and went when it comes relative to hip hop. But um, yeah, I, I love it. I think that we're cousins in terms of musically, cousins. And I would really like to see more cross collaborations the way mm-hmm. they used to happen. Yeah. So that we come together a little bit more, you know, black and brown. We don't always admit that we have a shared struggle. Why is that? Well, colonialism, (laughs) you know, I think colonialism, a lot of miseducation. Folks are taught that lighter skin in many instances or certain texture of hair or if you're closer to white, quote unquote, then you may be better. I think that we don't know our history, that a lot of us came off the boat a little earlier than others. There's so much, but I think it boils down to colonialism and and a lack of education of where we all come from. And that's unfortunate because I think we're far more powerful if we do understand that our similarities are more than our differences. You know, hip hop culture was created by black and brown people. From a business standpoint, I just had a meeting with a guy and most of their funds are being allocated to Latin outlets. And now that Black Lives Matter and whatnot is back in the headlines, they are now deciding that, oh, we we have to allocate money to Black outlets too now. So when you're talking money, some of those dollars are not coming to us because they prioritize other ethnicities more than than Black people. So in other words, Black outlets matter. Is that what you're saying? (laughs) Yeah, Black media matter. Yeah. So, man, uh, do we... Because without you, Chuck, we can't talk about hip-hop on a general level, right? We need black journalists. We need black media companies that can promote black artists, Latino artists, et cetera, et cetera. And it just Mm -hmm. seems that that is always a major struggle. Mike and I were just talking about Netflix. Well, they gave $120 million to to black colleges, I think, about a year ago. Now they're going to put in about $100 million in black banks to try and fortify right. those communities there. I don't know if that's enough, but but it's it's progress. And, and the more we have people like you, Chuck, like this show and this platform, and we're talking about these real conversations of how to improve our lives and improve the America that we love, but we just don't like it in the way it's currently in, that's going to take yeah. a lot. That's going to take a lot. It is going to take a lot. You see logos changing color. They're red, black, and green now. Right. You see these commitments you know, a hundred million here, a hundred million there. From where I stand, if you give me a fraction of that, I'm able to do what I need to do. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, if you're giving out money, if, if I have a piece of that, I'm able to do what I got to do to super serve my community. Correct. I really speak to systemic racism. I got tagged and I'll send it to you, Mike, as soon as I get off the phone. But I got tagged on a post like a friend of mine. And I, I don't know if we're friends now, but a, a gentleman <laughs> by the name of, 
<laughs> John Caramonica. Oh, for the New York Times. Yeah, John Caramonica. We used to work together at BET. I- I've never had a problem with John at all. I think he's very smart. I think he's a great writer. I don't know how great. I don't really follow his work that closely. But I just say that he's been writing about black music at the New York Times for a really long time. And Latino music, by the way. He seems to be fascinated with Osuna and reggaeton now, too. Yeah. So, I mean... I don't have a problem with John's personally, right? But it makes you pause, you know, why John? Why John? Why, you know, why John? I have the same beef with A.O. Scott of the New York Times chief film critic. Why is A.O. Scott reviewing Coco? It, it, it befuddles me to a point that, yes, it, there's only one answer. It's systemic racism. Exactly. And it, it's so pervasive. And I'll tell you guys a little scoop. You know, we've been... My business partner and I have really been toiling over some of our business relationships. We, we actually have, we have toiled over no, a number of them, but, but one in particular has been just highly problematic from a racial point of view. And I'm not going to detail that right now because I'll probably reveal too much, but we really are going to go in and when I say go in, really expose some folks in their racism, in their hypocrisy, in their sexism as well. It's time. You know. It's time. Yeah, it's time. And, you know, you kind of endure racism and you fight and you, you survive it because, again, similar to the rapper, you're, you're not really bad, but you're not, re- you're not really great. You're literally making so much money for other people and they give you sort of a crumb and think you're supposed to be happy with the crumb. And by the way, the allegation against John Caramonica per Solange, the singer, is that he said to her, don't bite the hand that feeds you. And I'm just, I don't know the context of that statement, but it's so, 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 so offensive in it really in any context to hear someone say that to him. And he's a media guy. And to say that to a singer of her note, it's just, it really is is problematic. Hey, hey, look, let me flip the script a little bit. This is how racism works on the other end, right? So Solange, I've never had a conversation with her a day in my life. You know what I'm saying? That's crazy. Right. I've never interviewed her. I'm a huge fan, but I've never interviewed her. Have you requested an interview with Solange? You know, a long time ago. And she said no? A long time ago. I won't say if she said no. I, I, I'll i tell you who told me no. Summer Walker. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, I mean, not her personally, but her people. So my point is, is this racism works in different ways. So for us, if we were able to, you know, interview Summer Walker, for example, just as a singer or whoever, Jay-Z, I mean, just just name your top tier name. That would be like money for us. That would be like cash money in a lot of ways. Not literally, but, you know, it does generate traffic, which generates impressions, which generates money. But we have to really grind it out because a lot of these artists aren't accessible to us. So they, they will run to TMZ, even though they've offended and pissed people off so many times. They'll run to the New York Times. They respect Forbes. So if all hip hop says Kanye's a billionaire, who's going to believe that? You know, we yeah, we need equity. We need equity in our own media companies. That's what I'm hearing from you. I'm hearing from you two things, Chuck. I'm hearing one. We need to have more people in positions of authority in the media that can speak about black and brown and not have it be a white guy who's talking from his white experiences growing up on how black music and and black artistry is so excellent as opposed to giving us those jobs 
and allowing us to 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 do social commentary on that. And then the second thing I'm hearing yeah. from you is this notion of equity in media business. I think you're kind of right. Would yeah. you feel that if you go to allhiphop.com to to promote your your album or Brown and Black Pockets to promote your album, it's not scale enough. It's not prestigious enough. It's not the New York Times Absolutely. or the Washington Post. Absolutely. It's not, it's not, it's not accepted valued. by the general white audience. Right. But it was a few years ago. So mm. a few short years ago, a lot of these artists would be acceptable. Uh, they would literally build their careers off, you know, your sweat and, you know, your real commitment to their career. Because, we're, you know, let's keep it honest. We're fans as well as in most instances we're fans or we care in most instances about these artists personally. So if you see someone working hard, super talented, you know, if it's a young kid from the hood, black, brown, whatever, or white. I mean, let's be real, white too. You know, not just black and brown, everyone. You know, because hip-hop is not just black people in, or brown people any, anymore. A lot of the genuine voices are um, other colors too. So I say all that to say that we have been supportive in staffing. We have been supportive in artist, in, in the artists in pretty much every way, shape, or form. And then when they get to a certain level, they don't have time. And that's that's ridiculous. I mean, it's crazy. It's like the it's the epitome of disrespect. <laughs> right. It really is. As you can tell, I, I have a lot to say on this because, you know, nothing has truly changed for us. But it feels like the voices are a little bit louder now and they're being heard a lot more than in the past. And that's probably the biggest difference. Now, what happens going forward is another story. I think a lot of this will, they're just waiting for it to kind of blow over and get back to normal. Some of us are not going back to normal. Amen. From everything I've been hearing from you, Chuck, I think there's a couple of things that that, that we can start doing to alleviate the problem. Number one, when you look at at streaming apps like Spotify, they're owned by European owners. You have iTunes by American owners, white mostly. Tidal is a very interesting thing because Tidal was created by Jay-Z and a group of other artists, right? But mostly led by Jay-Z. Where's Tidal now? So something happens when a Black-owned business or a Latino-owned business has the desire and maybe even has the resources to, to start something but it never quite fulfills the full potential of what it can be. And I think we need to start asking artists to A, promote on minority-owned media companies. That puts Rolling Stone magazine and it puts all these other magazines and media companies on check. Two, we need to have investors invest in music labels that are minority-owned. Right. The same way affirmative action happened in, in the 60s and Martin Luther King fought for civil rights with Lyndon B. Johnson. We have to do this with the new president, whether it's Joe Biden or Trump. We have to start, I'm not, I don't think it's going to happen with Trump, but with Biden, yeah. we must do something to put minorities in positions of power because if not, how are we going to get through the next 10, 20 years? I don't have an easy answer for that. As far as title, I honestly don't think Jay-Z found it. I, I don't know if it's just a face, but it was there before Jay-Z, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. It was there. I think they're, they're Sweden, based in Sweden. Mm, okay. and, and, Jay, and Jay came in. And I think they had a great concept initially as being artist owned. But I'm not really sure of the particulars around that. But... I think that's that's sort of a, a, a bigger problem as well. There's an impression 
that some of these folks own these things or founded these things. And I don't think that that's true. You know, so it really goes back to my kind of my initial thoughts are that, you know, the illusion might be there. So you might subscribe to title because you think it's black owned or you feel like it's black owned or minority mm. owned. And, and maybe it's not. It's <sighs> just a front. It's so insidious. You know it's just so insidious the way it works, man. The well, way the system is rigged against us. Yeah. Some people are in on it. I mean, I hate to say this, and I'm, again, not speaking specifically about Jay-Z, but a lot of people are in on it. And some of this is not to be told. I mean, you know, we know where bodies are buried in a lot of instances. And you can't speak on it because there are consequences to that. And, and guess what, guys? Jay-Z, for example, has to fight racism, too. So the reality is, is while he is in like this great position of power, he's got to do sort of what he's got to do, how he's got to do it and position himself powerfully. But compared to, say, Apple Music or Spotify, what are we really talking about? I think, honestly, the harder route but more fruitful route would be for like a Jay-Z to invest into a young intelligent brilliant mind to build something from scratch and really take it there if you start thinking like that and you understand that a lot of these people that are behind these companies are paying their bills just like everyone else but they're actually putting all their sweat equity and their brilliance into a bigger company to make it even more powerful then you understand that those people exist it's all very, very relative, man. And I, 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 I always have wrestled with, what do I do? Do I sell and take the money and just use that to build something bigger or what? You know, yeah, at the end of the day, I, I, I'm comfortable where I am, but I always think these things just about every day. I'm not really here to judge people too much because I, I think that everyone has like a little private battle that they're fighting right. on some, some level or another. Who am I to judge you? Unless, you know, unless you're just evil. So then I'll judge you. But <laughs> if we all take care of our little space, if we're honest and we work with people who need help, and furthermore, if we ask for help, that's one thing I'm not good at, asking for help. But realizing that we're, we're kind of all in this together. But again, capitalism makes it hard to do that. Really pits us against each other more than anything. Some kind of moment. That's it for this eighth episode of Brown and Black. If you like our show and would like to support us, please subscribe and leave a review. It helps this podcast be heard by many more people. If you'd like to reach out to us, we're on Twitter at Brown Black Pod, also on Instagram at Brown Black Podcast, and on our new YouTube channel, Brown Black Podcast as well. Thanks for listening and talk to you next week for another episode of Brown and Black.
It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.